You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hey, 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 episode 69. We are talking about high-functioning eating disorders, which is a very interesting juxtaposition if you're listening to this directly after episode 68, which the title was The Neurobiology of Recovery, and that was with Dr. Jeffrey DeSarbo. At the very end, we sort of scratched the surface of this conversation about severe and enduring eating disorders, severe and enduring anorexia nervosa, and some end-of-life stuff. So... Not that this is exactly the opposite of that, but interesting contrast. What's so interesting about high-functioning eating disorders is that I would say it almost accounts for a large majority of eating disorders. So the way that I conceptualize eating disorders and disordered eating is on a continuum. Bear with me here because I know that you're not seeing any visual here, but if we had one side of a continuum, somebody who has a completely healthy relationship with food, and then in the other side of the continuum, the person has an eating disorder, that entire continuum is some form of disordered eating where somebody has a little bit of a complicated relationship with food and then more toward the side of eating. An eating disorder might be a little bit more of a, quote, clinical eating disorder. Now, if we take all the way at one end, that side of the eating disorder, part of the continuum as its own continuum, what I'm going to call, this is not even a term. I don't think, I think I probably made this up, but the, quote, high-functioning eating disorders on one side and then pretty medically compromised, severe and enduring eating disorders on the other. And the rest of the eating disorders fall on this continuum. So there's the level of severity of the symptoms. There's a level of frequency of symptoms. There's what you can see. There's the medical complications. There are all different things that are happening under the surface. They're happening right in front of your eyes. And we sort of create this narrative of, does this person have an eating disorder or not? And I think what I want to emphasize here, I know I've said this a million times, is that you cannot possibly tell if someone has an eating disorder based on looking at them. If somebody looks severely malnourished and you know people sort of say, oh my gosh, they look so anorexic. It's very possible that the person has anorexia nervosa. It's also very possible that they have some other medical condition. And it's also very possible, more possible than you think, that when you look at somebody who looks, quote, healthy or within normal or whatever you want to call it, that's the person you really can't tell what their eating situation or their relationship with food is or whether or not they have an eating disorder. It is completely impossible to tell. So I think when we save our assumption that this person has an eating disorder for the person who looks severely malnourished, we are really narrowing our understanding of what an eating disorder is. The same goes for any form of medical complications. So this can be really severe medical complications where we're afraid for someone's life or somebody has developed, you know, some sort of abnormality in their labs or osteopenia on their bone density scan, which has not, not turned into osteoporosis just yet, but you get what I'm saying. There is a continuum of medical complications as well. Having said that, just because somebody has no medical complications, it does not mean that they don't have an eating disorder. And I understand that there are (laughs) It's not even a double negative there. That's like a triple, quadruple negative. But I'm hoping you get what I'm saying. 
that when we hear the stories of some, oh my gosh, somebody was hospitalized for their eating disorder. They had to go inpatient. They were so malnourished. They're, they had a heart attack or they have osteoporosis at the age of 23. Those are pretty serious cases. Somebody has medical complications. It is obviously really, really serious. But also, we're looking at a really tiny, tiny percentage of people with eating disorders. And so if we go back to that continuum, those are the people that fall under the more severe side of the eating disorder spectrum. And we're leaving out of the picture everybody else. Now, I think part of where we get stuck with this is a lot of this is based on how do I think this person is doing on the outside? Whether I know them very well, or I just sort of see what's going on peripherally, whether it's on social media, or I just know them casually. A lot of this is determined and a lot of the judgments that people make and a lot of the conclusions that people come to are based on what's going on on the outside. So for example, if I see their body changing, if I see that they're hospitalized, if I notice that they're doing really poorly in school, if I can tell that they've been isolating themselves, if I can tell that something has shifted with their mood or their personality, they're really withdrawn, something that's really obvious to me as somebody who's just sort of like watching them on social media, for example. That's a barometer for how they're doing on the outside. It really doesn't reflect what's going on on the inside. And part of a really, really big aspect of diagnosing an eating disorder is the level of distress that it causes in someone. So that's a personal question. If I were to ask you, say we were not having a casual <laughs> casual conversation, if I were to ask you, what are your thoughts like? How much time do you think about food? How much is this upsetting you? What is your anxiety like? What are your obsessions like? What's your stress level like? What is your relationship with food like? And if you answer all of those questions and indicates to a pretty high level of distress, to me, that's very significant in diagnosing an eating disorder. I'm not saying that you have an eating disorder if you've answered all of those questions in a way that makes me makes me concerned. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are the ways that we can, quote, tell someone has an eating disorder based on how they look. And then there's the thing that to me feels a lot more important, what's going on inside. And we can't ever tell that unless we ask someone specifically and they give us an honest answer. So the idea of someone who has an eating disorder but is pretty high functioning is is actually quite common. So people can have eating disorders for decades without either knowing that they have an eating disorder or knowing and functioning really well. So these are people who are really perfectionist and really good at what they do. So say in high school, they got A's and then they went to college and they graduated with honors and they were taking so many more credits. I don't even know. How many credits do people take these days? Oh, it's been so long. And then, you know, now that they're working, they excelled, they've been promoted. And the general understanding of eating disorders is, oh, like they've they've sort of pulled themselves back. They're not able to think about so well. Cognitively, they're impaired. How are they possibly doing so well in school or at work? And this kind of person, it's like a no-brainer. Of course, I'm showing up at school. Of course, I'm getting A pluses. These are the people that are always surrounded by friends, something that we sort of are red flags go up if somebody has isolated themselves or withdrawn what's going on with their food and and how serious is it getting? And there's a depression element and there's there's so there's so much that's intertwined with eating disorders and, and the sense of isolation. But on the outside, a lot of people have a lot of friends 
and they're always surrounded by people. Now, you know, when we try to understand how to understand the the different thoughts together of eating disorders do affect your relationships and your interest in relationships, et cetera, et cetera, and, and sort of marry that with the idea that somebody might always be surrounded by their friends. A, might be there's a lot of anxiety attached to it, or it could be that their relationships aren't the same way that they could be, or it could just be that they have a very different eating disorder than what we think eating disorders are supposed to look like. Somebody might look really good. The kind of person that you look at and you're like, oh my gosh, they look amazing. They're normal weight. They're not underweight. And they're not even that sort of like poster child for orthorexia where they're obsessed with healthy eating and going to the gym. Like maybe that person is not, and they're not flaunting that, but who knows? Maybe internally they're struggling. I'm not saying look at every single person on the street and be like, oh my gosh, maybe that person is eating disorder. Absolutely not. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that when we exclusively call the people who are really, really sick to be the only ones who have eating disorders, then we're really excluding everybody else. And again, that's a large percentage of the population of people who struggle with any form of eating disorders or disordered eating. Now, when somebody is visibly ill and their labs are off and medically they're compromised, they really need a much more higher level of care. They need hospitalization. They need medical attention pronto. And they sort of talk about how they're not sick enough. We know it's part of the disease. But I think what's a lot more subtle is when somebody who doesn't look like they're sick or quote sick, and they're like, I don't really know. Do I need therapy? And then when they're in therapy and their therapist says, maybe you need an IOP or a PHP, uh, just a higher level of care, a little bit more intensive support. They're like, yeah, but it's not that bad. Like people have like real eating disorders. People are like all the things that we talked about before. And I think you can make that argument no matter where you're at on the continuum. There's always going to be someone that's sicker than you. And it really doesn't mean anything about the level of care that you deserve or the level of care that you need. So I think what I mean to say with all of this is that no matter where you are, it's almost always going to feel like it isn't bad enough. And then... If it isn't bad enough, then, you know, I don't really need to do anything about it. I don't really deserve more support. And, you know, twice a week therapy is once a week or seeing a dietitian. All of these are the eating disorder talking. And that's for a separate conversation about how to the personification of an eating disorder, which is in my mind, not that simple. But the idea is that there's always going to be someone who's sicker than you. There is always going to be someone who is infinitely sicker than you. And yes, I'm being dramatic here. But point is, where you are right now, if you have a complicated relationship with food, if it's upsetting you, you deserve any and all support that you're willing to receive. The reason why I think it's so important to have this conversation is because the majority of people that I'm going to talk to in my lifetime, in my career's lifetime, are going to be people with high-functioning eating disorders. It's going to seem like it isn't enough. It's going to seem like, but I'm doing so well. I have my friends. I have my grades. I have my job. I have my promotion. I have my relationship. I have my kids. You know, I I don't feel depressed all the time. And it's going to be weird because you don't fit the model of what a quote eating disorder looks like. That is media. That is people having a pretty mm, narrow understanding of what eating disorders are. It is not at all based in reality. 
So I guess the message that I'm hoping you'll take from this is that if you have a complicated relationship with food, and to be honest, whether or not you meet criteria for an eating disorder, if you have disordered eating and it's bothering you, that's enough. That is where the story starts and ends. If you want therapy, get it. If you want to meet with a dietitian, go meet with them. Definitely get your labs done. Definitely check in with a doctor. If you want to meet for therapy three times a week, do that. If you want to go to an IOP or if you need a sign or a push to do something a little bit more because what you're doing right now isn't working, then do it. There's always going to be somebody else who is sicker than you. And it really doesn't mean that you don't deserve any more help than you deserve. Honestly, it gets kind of irrelevant when we talk about the severity of someone's eating disorder when we're talking about getting help. Just get help. I mean, shameless plug. Just get help. Just do it. Do it right now. Finish the podcast, make the call, send the email. You will not be sorry. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.